I won't be here long. <laughs> um, can I once again uh, welcome Bishop Anthony uh, to be here uh, this weekend and to thank him for giving up the whole of the weekend to be with us. Uh, it, it must, it, in the middle of a uh, very busy ministry, it, we, we are uh, greatly blessed by that. And his thoughts on the conference before he arrived to, to assist the team uh, as we were preparing. Uh, when I was working at Prison Service College in the Diocese of Coventry and Bishop Anthony was the Bishop of Warwick, Bishop Anthony gave me an hour a year of uh, ministerial review and it was a very special time. I learnt many things about Bishop Anthony and he I think a good few about me. Uh, but uh, uh, two things that I, I, I'd like to recall. Uh, one was his breadth of vision for ministry within and beyond parish and that was a, a great delight for me in a, a non-parish ministry. And the second was his ability to be totally with the person or the people that he was speaking with, despite, no doubt, many other calls on his time and his thoughts. And I always left uh, his house feeling both cherished and challenged, and that's important. So uh, I welcome him to come and share his thoughts with us, and uh, I'm sure that we shall feel both cherished and challenged as we listen. Well, that's very sweet of you. I don't think I'd dare say anything after that. <laughs> I think stop when you're ahead. It's a <laughs> um, yes. Good, well, that's really kind of you. Um, and it's kind of what you say about uh, giving up time, but it's true of you all, for goodness sake. You're all hugely busy people, and I'm just really grateful for you giving up your time to be here. Um, I valued it uh, a lot, being here, um, enjoying it a lot, and, and learned a good deal. Um, I'm slightly grateful that we've changed rooms because I don't know whether you remember in the Mulberry Room but the right hand flip chart had written on the top line the terror of bishops <laughs> so I'm pleased that that's gone it must be still around somewhere and whoever wrote it can tell me later what, uh, what quite was in mind I'm not sure it was a reference to this session or quite what it was um, as you know from the, the timetable that we've got this says session 7 the episcopal view well, um, Bishop Frank's here, <laughs> so I'm sure he'll tell me that it's just, there's no such thing, obviously, as the Episcopal view, but I'll try and give you one Episcopal view, though I feel a bit mindful of the story about solicitors. You get um, two solicitors together and three opinions, so maybe you'll get kind of more than just an Episcopal view as we go on. Um, I thought in the time open to us it might help if I slightly um, said something autobiographical to begin with, um, just to give a feel, really, of a bit more about who I am, maybe, but, al but also um, an indication, as it's true for all of us, about the complexity of the experiences that we've got about collaborative, and therefore, to some extent, some of the stages that have led us to um, commit strongly, as you obviously have by being here and giving up this weekend yourselves. I was brought up in a Christian family, and the church that we worshipped at was um, fairly traditional Anglo-Catholic. It was a bit the case of Father Knows Best, except in my case it was a case of Grandfather Knows Best, because he was the parish priest. Um, so that, that was kind of home. Um, I was a biochemist at university. I was ordained in 1972, and um, served my title in a place called New Addington, outside Croydon. I um, don't know if any of you know it, but its large post-war council estate was 30,000 people when I was there. Half the population were under the age of 18, so there was a challenge. Um, I was the fourth curate. Now, it was in those days in Canterbury Diocese, it's Southwark Diocese now, but Canterbury used to believe in what it called training parishes. And that was an interesting experience in lots and lots of ways, um, but one of them was that it was actually it was a curate team very definitely not a clergy team. We had a training vicar, of course, um, but, I mean, for, just to give you a flavour, we had to, all of us, we had to produce lists of who we'd visited every week, and the list was expected to have at least, at least 20 names on it. Um, that was kind of part of the regime. Um, 
anyway, there we are. So that, that was a curate team. I then went to Christchurch in Oxford as a chaplain, and there was no team. Um, there wasn't, um, dare one say, even a team of the dean and canons. Um, I, yes, well, <laughs> you can look. Yes, I, I, won't, I won't start on that, but uh, uh, if you want, yes, late, late, <laughs> later. But um, there was an extraordinary ability. I, I, I actually strongly believe that buildings have more effect on us than we realise. Um, I, I don't think we, we've really taken on board. I think, I mean, that's, that's a statement as human beings, not just as clergy. Christchurch, um, Tomquad, um, it's an extraordinary place. I met one of the undergraduates who was on his way back to his room, and I said, why are you walking around the street um, when you live you know, in Canterbury Quad? And he said, oh, um, I don't like walking through Tomquad. And he'd been an undergraduate for 18 months, and he's still, in his own college, uh, walked round the street rather than the shortest route through the college. Uh, extraordinary, really, the mood of the place. And it seemed to me to freeze out the wonderfully delightful canons that we had there. All the warmth of them seemed to kind of, I don't know, go when they got together. Anyway, so there was no team. Um, I went from there to High Wycombe as a team vicar. Um, I'd, they'd had a two-year interregnum. And when the Bishop of Buckingham asked me if I'd go as a team vicar to High Wycombe, um, he told me that there was um, an NSM there and that the NSM had uh, been a reader, because I asked about this, he'd been a reader in the parish before. And he also told me that um, Peter had been looking after the interregnum for two years. So um, I said to Bishop Simon, well, I think before we go any further, I'd better meet Peter, because, as you can well imagine, I mean, there are, there are NSMs and NSMs, and uh, there are clergy who, if they've been effectively the vicar for two years, the last thing they want some, you know, some young upstart from Oxford coming in um, and being their vicar. Um, and when it was quite clear that when I arrived in the parish, um, Peter already knew people far better than I would, however many years I stayed there. So the dynamic of these kinds of things, I mean, we, we were shown, those of us who were um, in, in your group of, with earlier, you showed us um, a picture, didn't you, which was, which was very much I could identify with, of where the, um, where the curate was the main blob for those um, who, um, in terms of relationships. And that was certainly true of Peter. He, he knew everybody. So the dynamics of these things vary very hugely, and you, you need to clearly know what the dynamics are in any team and situation you're in. Peter um, was full-time working for the Prudential Insurance, and he, I mean, he, was, he, was, he was, was great as a colleague and hugely supportive, and um, he'd run the interregnum by setting up a team, a local ministry team. <coughs> And what's more, um, he could get away with something I could never have got away with as a stipendary priest. Peter would say, I work five days a week, I commute to London, I give up my time to work on Sundays, I'm prepared to run this team, we will meet at half past seven on Saturday mornings. We will meet for an hour and a half, we will have breakfast together, we will stop at 9.30 and then I've got the rest of my day and you've got the rest of your day. And they did. And the local ministry team in St. John's High Wycombe met at 7.30 every Saturday morning. Every Saturday morning. Um, and Peter said, I'm on the train at 7.30 the other mornings and I'll be there with you. Now, that's, he could get away with that in a way that uh, you know, none of us, I think a stipendary clergy could. And it was great. All the people, actually, in the team, I'm not sure this is good or bad, but it's a statement of fact, ended up either as readers or ordained, all the lay people. Um, and that was part of the measure of the growth, really. And it reveals the point, ministry grows ministry, which is kind of fundamental, I think, for all of us. Um, we also had a clergy team. The whole of High Wycombe was a team ministry in those days. 13 clergy in the team, 80,000 people in High Wycombe that we served. Seven districts, really run as a federation of seven independent parishes. Um, I went to Amersham, um, where 20 people was a crowd at the main service when I went there. So it was more a matter of kind of grow a church rather than grow anything else. Um, I'm pleased to say it's a bit bigger when we left. And uh, we got lots of other people who worked in ministry and grew gifts, and that was great. Um, 
and I was involved as well as Rural Dean and Lay Team and um, different teams there, team with uh, treasurers from the deanery, which again I thought was hugely important, getting the treasurers together. Um, Amersham Deanery was, um, no doubt still is, the wealthiest deanery in Oxford Diocese. When I was there in 1986, we had a parish share of a million pounds for the deanery, um, and quite a lot of parishes had over £100,000 parish share in those days. Um, and the, the treasurers, so that, I just say that because that's kind of another type of team really, and the treasurers as lay people, um, I found it really helped getting them together because they negotiated with each other what the parish share would be and they'd not kind of 10,000 off one and split it up between the others because they all knew each other's situations. So again, it, it's a different kind of team. I chaired the OLM scheme for the Oxford Diocese. Um, I'll say a bit more about that as we go on. Um, so um, within the diocese was um, deeply involved at that stage. I remember going as well to an OLM conference um, at Gloucester. Must have been back in, I don't know, 94. Some of you may have been at that, I think, which probably was a precursor to this kind of conference. Coventry. Um, I think I partly I was asked to be Bishop of Warwick because Bishop Simon Barrington Ward wanted um, OLMs in Coventry Diocese and uh, a greater emphasis on local ministry there. Um, <laughs> well, it speaks for itself, doesn't it? Nobody from Coventry Diocese here, so... <laughs> what a lousy job I did then, I think. Um, and then we moved, um, after eight years there, to Hereford Diocese. Um, and... Hereford, I think, could in many ways describe itself as a local ministry diocese. Um, as you heard from John earlier, it's had that commitment for about 17 years. And um, that I want, therefore, just to say a bit about that, because what does seem to me fundamentally clear, and I think will have come across to us all over this day and a bit already, that um, if local ministry really is to flourish in dioceses, it can clearly flourish in parishes by a different route, because it can flourish if the parish priest really committed to it. But if it's going to flourish in a diocese, I think it needs sustained diocesan commitment. I think that's been a, come across quite a lot of times already to us, so I think that's not saying anything surprising to you, but... I do stress it because I think it's got to be sustained and I think it's got to be a diocesan commitment all the way through a diocese, bottom upwards. Um, kind of bishops at the bottom upwards, I think. It's, um, I think it's really got to them, they've got to be committed to it. The, if the leadership of the diocese isn't committed to it, then it, it's very, very unlikely, actually, that it will really be caught in a diocese, I think. Um, it'll be caught in bits but won't be sustained and what's more local ministry's got to be primary it's got to be for its own sake it's got to be for good theology which we all know in terms of every member of ministry or however you want to describe it and the gifts of the whole people of God it's got to be for good theology not as an, a way to something else like OLM much that I'm committed to OLM um, it, but that's not why we have local ministry. And again, that's hugely important. I think, I think one of the mistakes, um, actually, I felt in Oxford Diocese was that OLM is what drove local ministry. And I think that's partly why um, you know, it doesn't kind of embed, really. Um, I, I, I think it's quite possible to go by that route, but you've then got to learn to change the focus, I think. Otherwise, I think... Um, we're putting the, the wrong thing first. Um, so it's got to have, I think, the support of the whole bishop's staff, um, and it's got to have um, kind of money where its mouth is. It's got to have resources and structures. Um, I learned a long time ago that it works best in um, parishes, and I believe the same to be true in dioceses, that our budget headings reflect our strategic headings. They so often do not. I mean, you might take that away and look at your own budgets. But I think it's really, really important, even if a budget heading only has 100 quid in it, if it's a strategic heading, it should be there. And it, that how else can we make our money work 
for the vision that God gives us and for our theology and for our strategic aims and purposes. And so often you look at a budget head and they'll be kind of traditional things and you know they put all the building stuff first and everything. You ask people what's the strategy of the parish and you get a totally different list. Well if one's a servant of the other that, that's a very odd kind of comment actually. So I think the same is true at a diocesan level in terms of structures and resources which I therefore would include money. So I think money needs to be on the um, the budget needs to express. If local ministry matters, put it there. And make the um, budget headings work round what are the strategic aims within the diocese. Um, and local ministry has got to be embedded. Um, it needs, as I say, the affirmation of lay ministers and gifts and the life of the body and all the things we're very used to. Um, I want just a, as a slight aside just to comment that um, two or three days ago the Church of England published the average weekly attendance figures for 2010 which you may have seen uh, they probably didn't occupy a lot of your reading time um, they possibly occupy bishops slightly more because um, it's always you know, a bit kind of revealing when there's a diocesan chart of, of what's happened in every diocese um, Hereford Diocese, I'm pleased to be able to say, is, I'm, I haven't counted up and I, and, uh, I don't quite know, um, but I know when the figures were produced last year, for the five years up till then, there were about 16 dioceses that, where the numbers had grown over the five years, which is not what you might, the impression you might get from the media. <laughs> Hereford was one of those, and Hereford figures have grown slightly again this time, and I put that down to local ministry. I think I put it down to the engagement of the communities and congregations within our diocese. As you heard from John, about half the, di half the benefices have local ministry development groups, and it reflects the seriousness with which those communities and congregations engage with their faith, engage with their service of God, engage with their ministry and life. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of the first bit I really wanted to say, sustained diocesan commitment. Then I think um, also what's needed is the need to change culture. Um, we probably would all agree to that. We might put it in slightly different ways. But we need to change the cultures within our congregations. I regret to say that uh, there's a long, long way to go with some of our congregations, some of our communities, um, to turn people who go to church into disciples, disciples into ministers of the gospel and so on. All the things that you are well familiar with. But we do need to change culture. And what I really want to say uh, partly about that is that pace of change matters. Um, I suppose it brings to mind all those kind of jokes about uh, people saying about how many people does it take to change a light bulb. And the last one says, change? We don't believe in change. Um, but it, but it, th there is a bit of that feeling that... Um, Parishes will put in their parish profile, um, we want to change, um, but I tend to think that the subtext is, providing afterwards nothing's any, at all different. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of the Hereford way of change. Oh, sorry. But it's a bit how some people like to feel about it. So we have to kind of work with the culture to move us on and to help that sense, therefore, of change. Which um, means, I think, that we have to recognise the pace of this. If any of us is foolish enough to think it's going to happen in a year, then you know, we haven't really understood um, human beings or our parishes or the Church of England or, or actually Englishness either, if it comes to that. Um, I think very often we overestimate what we can achieve in one year and underestimate what we can achieve in three years. And I was saying to people earlier, I rather regret that we have 365 days in a year. It would be much better in a way if we had a thousand, because it would, you know, we, we naturally think in terms of year terms, and that would give us um, a more realistic time, very often, to introduce changes. Um, having been a parish priest all my life until I was made a bishop, um, I'm also acutely conscious that there are those bishops, um, Simon Barrington Ward, um, is one of them. He, he had a kind of ten good ideas before breakfast every day. Um, quite a few of which became diocesan initiatives, which, which was a little exhausting. Um, I mean, it was great in a way, but 
the, 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 the risk, there's always a risk if there's too many diocesan initiatives. I mean, I, I, I learnt that as a parish priest, and I'm very wary as a bishop of having too many. And what's more, I try to make sure that when we do have anything that um, could at all be interpreted as a diocesan initiative, it's in sympathy with the major thrust and major direction. It may come from a different angle, but it wants to get to the same place and wants to affirm and build on the other ones, the other bits, and take us in the same direction. And I would suggest the same needs to be true in parishes as well. I don't think it's really any different. Um, and John was describing... Um, the, the, um, the five strategic aims where we have local ministry first um, he was describing the 2015 onwards document which again builds on the same sorts of things um, before that we had a focus on worship which again pulled in a similar direction we've strengthened the sense of spirituality and when we had a residential meeting of the bishops council about um, 15 months ago um, I was at one level, well, I was hugely gratified because they, they were kind of playing back. I'd been in the diocese a bit over six and a half years, I think, by then. They were playing back the things I'd been saying for six and a half years, really, um, which, which, is always, which is always quite gratifying in one way, but also it made me smile because it was exactly the same two initiatives they came up with that um, parishes had come up with 30 years ago. Um, not at all um, earth-shattering, but totally fundamental to what we're about, Deepen our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Can't fault that. Grow in confidence to live and express it. Can't fault that. Now, I mean, it's, but isn't it great that a bishop's council um, can, can say that these are the two things that we're on about as a diocese and come up with a totally kind of spiritual and mission agenda? And again, it, it, it's of a piece with the same kinds of things. It means that the initiatives and the bits that we do announce and that we do do something about push us, hopefully, in the same direction and help this continuing process of needing to change culture. Helping people to grow in confidence, to live and express their faith. That's one of the things I go around saying all the time because it's just where we are. We need to. If we don't speak up for Christ, if we don't speak up for the Christian faith, it's more and more and more clear. In a way, I want to say almost thank God but it is more and more clear that nobody else will. I mean, I wish they would, but because it makes it clearer, it actually makes the imperative for us all the greater, which in a sense actually is helpful. But, I mean, maybe for sad reasons we've got there within our Englishness. So we need... It takes time um, to change the culture, and we need the opportunities as well, um, which is why interregnum matters so much. You, you heard John saying earlier that one of the jobs that he has is when there's an interregnum, um, the first informal stage we have is that the archdeacon goes and has a meeting with all the church wardens. It's followed up by John plus another person, because, you know, work collaboratively, not just John on his own or somebody else on their own, but two people go in um, to work with the congregations on their perception of where God's taking them, what are their needs, where's God leading them, what's next, for them as the people of God before you get on to ask what about the next parish priest. And the sense, therefore, of an opportunity to change culture. It's an opportunity. There are not many opportunities like that within the life of congregations, but that is a key one. Just as there are key moments for the opportunities of transition and things for clergy. And, it, and so what goes on in terms of corporate change is mirrored in a way by the change that goes on, I think, for clergy as well in terms of ministerial development reviews. And those of you who have been CME or are CME or CMD officers will know that um, the church has kind of identified five critical points in, in clergy lives of, of, of opportunities for change. Well, interregna are one of the key points uh, for congregational life and change. Um, thirdly I want to say something about our local ministry scheme not, not a great deal because John uh, spoke about it very clearly earlier today um, but I wanted just to observe that um, very often I think, I think this is true of any organisation um, I think this is a strategic comment about change that if you're going to introduce something new in an organisation there needs to be a certain clarity about what it is that is new. And clarity in describing it 
looks as though it is fairly clearly circumscribed. In a way, I think that's necessary because otherwise, if it's too vague, people think, well, what's new and how can you catch the vision? So I think very often, if there's something new within the culture of a diocese, like for us in Hereford Diocese 17 years ago with local ministry, because it's a change and a departure, you've got in a way to set it up as something different. Because if it's just the same, why do it? And difference, therefore, has to have a certain vocabulary that goes with it, a certain way, a certain way of saying what kind of animal is this. And as soon as you do that, it looks a very different or fairly different animal. And it looks as though what you end up with is rather prescribed. Now, I think that is a necessary stage to go through quite often when change is being introduced. But it's a stage, to my mind. And part of what I sought to do when I came to the diocese was to move it on, because I felt my perception, I mean others might want to say it differently, um, was that it was still a bit therefore over-prescribed for something that was now seven years old and had already in many ways got embedded um, and already was being accepted by lots of people because it looked as though this was a very specific animal and you signed up for the whole deal or nothing. And therefore it looked as though the diocesan scheme had hoops you had to crawl through and hurdles you had to jump over and you had to do it the diocesan way. That was... That wasn't really quite true, but that was perception. So part of what we sought to do was to weaken that perception, not lose the clarity of the animal and the nature of local ministry, but rather, therefore, what I was keen to do was to stress that what looked like prescription and looked like hoops and hurdles was in fact to do with best practice and to say that if you want to sustain collaborative ministry in a benefice, there are, in the common experience of the church, which actually is true internationally, it's true of North Michigan, in the States, it's true of Auckland in New Zealand, as well as um, lots of dioceses in England, then there will be some elements which you need to have there. Otherwise, you're vulnerable. It's not saying you can't do it without. It's not saying you can't do it by other routes. But it's saying that if you want the best chance and it to be done in the best way, these elements need to be there. Calling out is really key. Um, I didn't want to put my two-penneth in earlier, but I would have wanted to ask the second group particularly, did you hear the comment, um, the vicar asked me to join? The, 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 the lawyer said, didn't he? Now, fine, but that's not our way. It's not just up to the vicar. Now, he, he, he may not, it may have been shorthand, but there may have been lots of other things. But how you call people out matters. Um, we have them called out by the whole congregation. The, the parish priest needs a veto. I think that's fair, because they've got to be able to work with the parish priest. But basically, it's, it's a common insight. We had one benefice of not a huge number of people, who when they were calling people out, had 70 names, which shocked I mean, in a wonderful way, all of them shocked me, I must say. I thought it was brilliant, stunning, that these five villages, I think, five congregations, could come up with 70 names between them of people to serve on their um, local ministry development group. Um, I mean, I'm of whom I think we probably ended up, I can't remember what we ended up, eight or ten. We, I think we normally have about six to ten, don't we? Yeah, about that sort of size. So, but wasn't that fantastic? And really affirming that there were so many they could consider but it need, the, how you call people out matters. How you authorise people matters, because I think it needs... I mean, we are, we are an Episcopal church, and it needs, I think, an Episcopal push at the beginning, and, and kind of... It, it's, it's an Episcopal, yes, whoopee, get on with it, great, do it, you know. And, and permission matters. So I think these things do, do play a part. It needs the right um, delegation from the PCC. It needs to have clarity. What's going to be the focus? We leave um, that to be negotiated, except that we do say within the diocese that actually best practice is that there will be, and in fact we require there to be an element that engages with the community. I took the point, I thought it was a good point, that, um, you know, that the priest was saying, um, 
what are we going to do for the community is a bad question. Um, we, we are already the community, but we need to engage with the community. So we expect that of our local ministry development groups. What else they do is really up to negotiation with them and the PCC and the parish priest. But So clarity matters, otherwise you get power struggles and power games, and that's hopeless. I mean, that ultimately, that will destroy things. Training obviously matters, and ongoing training. Um, commissioning at the end of the process matters. How people meet then matters. Um, the review matters, and the renewal matters. One of the things which I salute in Hereford Diocese and those who've carried the responsibilities. Um, one of the things Hereford Diocese is actually brilliant at, um, and I don't say that there are a huge number of things we're brilliant at, but we are brilliant at second and third generation of local ministry development groups. I'm really impressed by that. And I think that that's the touchstone. That's why best practice matters. Otherwise, they will die. If you don't have the best practice, second and third, second generation may survive, third generation will be weaker, fourth generation won't happen. It, it needs to have embedded from the beginning, I think, the right elements if it's going to live on and not just be a nine-day wonder or you know, the, the last bishop's whim. I mean, it's... Um, John's the third local ministry officer in the diocese. Now, we, somebody was saying earlier that the personnel on the changes matter. They do. But if it's embedded, if this is um, not just one person's good idea, then actually um, continuity will be there when personnel changes, whether it's the bishop or, or the local ministry officer or whoever. But only, I think, on, well, only is perhaps a bit extreme, but it will have its best chance if best practice is followed. And without these elements, there's a gap, I think. There's a weakness. So I do think those sorts of things matter. And I think something which has not really been said yet that I've heard, that actually what matters is prayer. It matters that the local ministry development groups pray together. Some of our LMDGs, and I would... I mean, John will know better than me, but... I would say probably the best ones meet, uh, they might meet um, twice a month, and they will meet one of those occasions just to pray. Some of them meet just to pray. Not a perfunctory five minutes, let's get on with the business. But they'll meet, because the prayer is the business. That actually does matter. And if you don't take anything else away from the weekend, please take away the question to you, and therefore the local ministry teams or development groups, whatever you call them, that you're engaged with, do they actually see prayer as their work? Do we? It matters. And the rest, I think, actually will flow if that is right, not the other way around. So, the prayer bit matters as well. Um, I better go on a bit faster, otherwise there'll be no time for questions. Um, I was going to say something to you about collaborative leadership. We heard a bit more about that yesterday, I think, more than today. Um, I, I think I just want to acknowledge that um, there's more work to be done, and, and maybe there'll be a chance to say a bit more tomorrow, I don't know. But I think we need to say a bit more about the role of the priest in the team. There was slightly, I think, a bit of the flavour yesterday, so somehow it's all a bit interchangeable. Um, I mean, I, it wasn't quite said, but there's... But, but I think we do need to explore a bit more, well, what is it to be priestly? What's the priest's distinctive gifts and contribution? And how do we actually use and acknowledge and affirm that? And I think also if we don't get that right, we don't also understand the nature of OLM um, within, and the calling out of ordained local ministers within um, a team. So I think there's a bit more to be said and done about that. Collaborative... Um, needs not just to be with parishes and benefices. Um, my view would be, um, this Episcopal view, <laughs> that collaborative, um, I don't say it's got to start with the bishop, but it's got to include the bishop. I think it would look jolly odd in our diocese if people thought 
that I was going around saying they should all have local ministry development groups. And if they knew I was kind of a prince-bishop, hierarchical and directive, um, well, I'll leave you to guess which bits might be true, but, um, <laughs> but, but it does actually matter, I think, in terms of how, therefore, the bishop's staff functions. It matters how the bishop's council functioned. Um, uh, one of the things I did in our diocese um, was... Um, change the nature of the bishop's council. I don't likely kind of change structures and things, but when I feel they're inhibiting in some way, I'm, then, then I do. Um, otherwise, you, you kind of put attention in and you end up navel-gazing if you're not careful. But um, I don't mean to tell tales out of school, which I'm about to do, really. But the, there was a bit of a feeling, I think, that firstly, the bishop's council was far too big. I mean, 35 people or something attended. Secondly, um, the sector ministers um, dominated... Um, and the third, the consequence of that was that all the lay members felt completely disempowered. And most, mm, I don't know, but I would have thought 90% of the, of the speaking was done by the clergy or the support ministers, and possibly 5 or 10% by the lay members, which in my book is pretty dysfunctional if you want a, a group to really work well together. Um, we, we end, we've ended up with 20 people um, I kicked all the sector ministers off unless they were elected um, and that had a great releasing effect for the lay people who, um, I mean I think if you sat around with our bishops council you wouldn't necessarily know, apart from maybe the way they were dressed who was lay and who was ordained in terms of contributions and it, it's meant that we've, I think we've worked better but I'm just giving you that as an example because if, if we speak collaborative for parishes and benefices and don't live it elsewhere, then you know, how can it be embedded and how can that actually benefit the work of the diocese as a whole? Um, and also, I'll give you another um, slight symbolic example. Um, I spoke to our dean of the cathedral um, because I wanted to do something really radical that went against um, the cathedral statutes. The cathedral statutes, you, you won't, I, there's no reason why you need to know what I'm about to say, but they do specify the order of processions. Now, this will be a surprise to you. But they do. They tell in the statutes for diocesan services who is to walk in what sequence. Um, as you know, in the Church of England, it's, a, it's rude to say, um, after you, because, you know, the, 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 the bishop comes last. So it's, um, it, it's always, the, the further you get back in the procession, the more senior you are in the diocese. So to say after you is, is uh, anyway. Um, the, now, the, 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 what's at issue is we have a suffragan bishop in the diocese, Bishop of Ludlow, who's also, in our case, the Archdeacon of Ludlow. What's at issue is that the Bishop of Ludlow is meant to walk in procession before the Dean in um, diocesan services. Now, also, by tradition, suffragan bishops, if the diocesan bishop is there, do not carry their pastoral staff. Um, because there's only one bishop as such, and he carries a crozier. Now, at one level, you may laugh at this and think this is all very trivial. And in a way it is, but I just tell you it because it's symbolic. Um, I, what happens in our diocese is that the Bishop of Ludlow, when he and I are at the same service, both carry our pastoral staffs and walk in together at the back of the procession, which, as I say, breaks the cathedral statutes. But it, the point is that it's symbolic. And I, again, I think little things matter. It, at one level, trivial. But at another level, not so trivial. Because what's the point of our ceremonies if they don't express our theology? What's the point of our ceremonies if actually they're stating something that's quite different from what we're stating the rest of the time? I mean, we've got, things have got to be consistent, it seems to me. So that's why I just tell you that, at one level, trivial, but actually symbolic, it seems to me, of how we work. Now, I'll bet you most people in the diocese wouldn't even notice that there's anything any different. But Alistair and I know, and a few other people know, and you know now. But, I mean, it does, I, mean, I don't know whether anybody ever talks about it in the diocese, but these things actually matter about how Alistair and I know we work, and how we work together, and how we want to make a statement that where one of us is, there is episcopy. And when we're both there, um, we work together. Because, you know, how else can we be collaborative? So I would just say... Collaborative leadership's got to be consistent and it's got to be through an organisation 
and through a diocese, I think, if it's going to ring true and be caught by other people and change the culture. Otherwise, you end up as a bishop saying, do as I say, not as I do. And, you know, where does that get you? I mean, if we believe it, we believe it. And if it's true for others, it's true for me. And it's true for how God wants us to work at every level. Um, I just make another bit of comment about the collaborative, that when uh, John showed you the, the diagram about structures and things, um, I just really wanted to stress um, that inevitably when you show structures in diagrammatic form, it looks a bit hierarchical. There's you know, this department and this department and this board and that board. And I wanted just to stress that actually what we also pay attention to is what I tend to describe in loose, um, in jar, uh, just a shorthand, is, is the horizontal linkage that goes on. It's really, really important that people don't work in silos. Um, and, I mean, that's borne witness that Esther's here, and Caroline's here, and Rob's here, and John's here, who all of them, well, John and Caroline are in the same board, Esther's in a different board, um, they, they actually work in the same um, building, but I'm just simply giving it as an example of kind of horizontal working and, and, and linkage and the fact that um, while we have um, a local ministry officer and we have a board for ministry and training, that actually we also make sure that it cuts across the other areas as much as we possibly, possibly can. And that's not the only way that... Um, we, with, with, the, with the meetings of the officers, with the meetings of the boards, with the meetings um, that take place informally, um, and, and so on. I mean, we have a number of different ways of trying to make sure that these things happen. But again, whatever your structures are, you need to find ways round your structures so that you don't make the structures too rigid, I think. Um, sitting where I do, it's really important, because otherwise, as I say, you end up with silo mentality and, and we're very good at human being, as human beings at doing that we don't need any encouragement with that whatsoever quite the opposite um, local ministry teams ministry leadership teams local ministry development groups let me just point out that names matter we've changed our jargon from local ministry team to local ministry development group again pretty trivial but words do make a difference and you know the as we were invited to reflect, the, the, the vicar's um, little helpers or some pejorative phrase. Um, the, the, the danger of a phrase like local ministry team is that it's their job. They do it all. The danger of a ministry leadership team is that they lead and don't do it and just tell the rest of us what we should be doing. I mean, all, I know that this is loaded, but that's, that's, if you want to rubbish something and if you, if, you want to, if you want to reason as a congregational member not to take part... You know, you, you take the language and, and, you, and you, you make the language um, twist it slightly so that you can ignore it, don't you? I mean, that's part of what goes on, um, to reinforce your own culture and not change. So local ministry development groups, an attempt to try and say a bit more clearly what we think we're about, about developing it for everybody. Doing some of it, yes. Encouraging others, yes. Encouraging others themselves to grow and be collaborative. And therefore, the ministry of encouragement, again, I would want to stress and the intention that the teams that we focus on are not themselves the goal. Of course they're not. Ministering communities are the goal. Spread of the gospel is the goal. For us to be more truly and fully church is the goal, all of us. Not just the, you know, the cognoscenti who are in the local ministry team. Um, everybody is. Um, that, that's, that's the vision. So focus on local ministry development groups, yes, but... Don't forget that they're a means to a bigger end. Um, flexibility in development, I wrote down as a language that um, relates a bit to my comments about culture and change. As I won't say much about that, apart from what, again, theologically is profound for me, um, and that's the word becoming, or the word provisional. I mean, we're all on a journey. Pilgrimage, thankfully, in many ways, is attracting much more attention. It emphasises journey, change, back to the same kind of business. But individually, yes, but also corporately. And therefore, this great need for us together to understand that we are becoming, we are the body of Christ, we must become what we are. We must become it more fully. We must learn it. And this is a part. It's not just a tool it's a critical bit, what we're about this weekend, of our all becoming more the body of Christ, becoming 
Christ's church. We believe the way he wants it. So those things matter. OLMs, I'm, um, I, I've, I've made a comment already that um, OLMs should emerge from local ministry, not be the drivers for it. And one of, the, one of the sadnesses I actually have in Hereford Diocese is, is actually how few OLM vocations we've had in the time I've been in Bishop. Um, I did actually um, say a few years ago that I hoped by this stage I could have challenged all the local ministry development groups um, who is God calling among you to be your OLM or OLMs, because there might well be more than one. Part of the reason I haven't is that um, we decided when we talked about it in the Bishop's staff meeting that the prior question was, well, okay, Bishop, if you do that and you get lots, how will you train them? Hmm. That's a bit tricky for us because the ministry division has pulled the rug a bit. Um, and that, that hasn't helped me. Um, and it leaves me with, as a bishop with a tricky decision, really, because either I play the game and, and do it the way I'm meant to do through ministry division, or we pull the rug and we um, go our own way and have a training that suits Hereford people and just has OLMs who will therefore only work in Hereford diocese, which isn't very fair to people if they then want to change diocese because other bishops may say, well, but you weren't properly trained because it was that funny Bishop Anthony who you know, had his own scheme when you were there. I mean, it, it, is, it is tricky for us how to stay part of a national church when actually the direction in which the national church has gone over OLMs actually is not very helpful to us, I don't think. I mean, I think it's lost the plot a bit. I... I'm, I'm more than happy to get rid of OLM language, but I'm not happy to lose the reality. I think I, the way I've always thought about it is that we've got a spectrum, a non-self-supporting spectrum, of which OLM is at one end and MSEs, Ministers in Secular Employment, at the other, and kind of parochial NSMs, self-supporting clergy, are, you know, more the bulk of it. But OLM is a genuine part and a genuine way of being a self-supporting minister and priest. And it's a bit different. The emphasis is a bit different. And um, I won't say more because of the time. Um, the last bit I'd just say, um, I was um, at the Rural Affairs Group for the Church of England on Wednesday. And we looked at part at the Arthur Rank report that they've just that they'd commissioned and produced about reactions to rural ministry. I was really disappointed. Um, Jill Hopkinson was there, so I mean, I said it to her, so I'm not saying something to you, I'm not saying elsewhere. I was really disappointed how little emphasis there was about local ministry in that report, for example. Um, and I am, I am also disappointed at times when ministry division doesn't emphasise it more. And um, I think in our rural thinking, we need... Um, I, I'm not saying... It's the only way of being church in rural areas, far from it. But I am saying it's a really important way of being church in rural areas, and I think, therefore, we ought very often with our rural language about church be a bit more ready to stress. So if there's work done which, um, about the rural life and ministry, which hardly gets a mention of local ministry at all, I think that's slightly sold the past. And, I mean, however much... I mean, Jill's answer is, well, you know, we surveyed lots of people, we had 350 responses, and this is a statement of the responses. Well, fair, fair game. I mean, but in that case, maybe the methodology was wrong if they were going to be dependent upon those 350 responses. Or maybe the rest of us in this room and everybody else should have replied as well. But, um, so maybe we've got ourselves to blame, or I've got myself to blame. But, um, I, again, I just think the connections of, of local ministry and rural are especially strong. Um, I'm not at all meaning you to hear that I'm saying local ministry is only rural. I'm not. It's urban and suburban and inner city as well. But it's also particularly important for us in rural communities. And I've spoken for too long. But, oh yeah, thank you. To, to think about and uh, with a great clarity as, as well. There are, there's time for some comments or questions. Uh, so I wonder whether the, there are things that you want to reflect on or, or ask Bishop Anthony about. <coughs> Bishop, having, having said you broke all the rules by walking in with the Bishop of um, how would you reckon that parish priests or OLMs and OLMs should um, 
should um, conduct themselves in ordinary working to express their solidarity. The, 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 the yeah, common life together. Well, I think I think processions again. I, I, as I say, I think they, they are symbolic. I think it, there's quite a lot of opportunity for clergy to walk in together as a group on occasions to maybe, maybe all robe and walk in together. I'm, I'm actually um, I'm I'm rather more in favour of of concelebrations. I, I know that that for some of you that will never have been in your theology. And for those for whom it was, it's passé. Um, but it's not with me, because I still think it says something that's important. Um, as bishop, when I go to some um, parishes, then I ask the priest if they want to concelebrate with me. And, um, and, and a few do, because again, we, what part of what we're saying is that you know, we together express the priesthood of Christ. So I, again, I, th- I, th- I think things like that are, are more worthy of exploration. I, th- I think um, what, what really matters is within, within parishes, I mean, people see how you work. They know. They know what goes on. They, they'll know if you sing from the same sheet and, and say, say the same thing and have clearly talked over the ideas. I think those are the things that really matter, that, that people understand one another, spend time with one another, trust one another, have caught the same vision and will speak of the same thing. And also that they can see that these are right. It's not just that it's always the vicars or the rectors or the bishops' idea that wins, as it were. But you know, the idea may come from somebody totally different and, and needs to. So again, I think what people see about the functioning, what they see about the practice, what they see about what the dynamic of how it goes on when you're together, for example, in a PCC meeting and the sort of situation you describe. Um, whether they see people put down or affirmed, listened to, whether their ideas are taken up um, or whatever. I mean, th- these are things that, that really signal whether people are collaborative and are working together. Do, does that help a bit? Or? Expressing their solidarity with the priesthood of all believers. Absolutely, with everybody else as well. Liturgy. Of course. Within liturgy. Within the lit- are you asking me a bit more of how that could be done or how else that could be done? Um, well, I mean, I, I think it, it is, is, it's obviously really important that, that, um, that the contributions that people make within the leading of the, of the liturgy itself um, are enriched by the whole congregation and not just by the clergy, if that's what you mean. Um, so again, these things, I mean, the tradition I was brought up in is it was the priest that read the gospel. Um, rather than anybody else. Um, you know, now, there are not many churches that would do that anymore. And that, that, again, seems to be part of the reality that expresses that we're all there as part of the priesthood of all believers, but we're all there as part, therefore, of the life of the church. And, and ministries are involved in the leading of worship just as they are in the other the areas of diversity. I, I think there's something else you're asking, really, but I'm not sure which bit it is. It's the whole congregation who, who celebrate the Eucharist, not just the... Of course. Well, it's Christ who celebrates the Eucharist, I think. I mean, I, I, mean, I think it's Christ who invites all of us. And um, we, we have priests because it's the character of, the, of God's church to be priestly. And therefore, I mean, you can't have... You know, if you have a congregation, whether it's eight people or 80 people or 800 people, you can't have them all saying the words of institution, I suppose you could. But, I mean, the, the point is it gets focused within the priesthood because the people are priestly and because it's Christ's invitation and Christ who celebrates and therefore we all offer the Eucharist together. We offer the worship of it together. So it's everybody is, um, in that sense, expressing and praying the Eucharist and you know, just as in the same way at um, ordinations or confirmations, it's the prayer of the people and the laying on the hands of the bishop. But it's the prayer of the people. It's, it's our common activity and our common work, it seems to me. We've got time for one or two questions. And if there are others left over, there's also a question and answer session tomorrow. Or informally afterwards. <laughs> Do you have another question or comment? 
Well, I mean, just a question which might be better answered tomorrow after more thought, which is to just gradually to increase the things you've already spoken about, the emerging Bishop's Council idea, the, the walking together, the sense of radically changing from a hierarchical notion of decision-making and about who holds the values. I mean, that's been one of the traditions, hasn't it, that those who've had lots of training and taken lots of public values canonically ordered, then have a, a huge overdose in steering. But if more and more people are lifted up into faith and prayer, and we trust their insight, then I think you're hinting that, that there could be a more collaborative way of a diocese finding its future, or a group of parishes finding its future. Mm. Um, but that's a long way from the culture of rural communities or urban ones for that matter. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, so it's, a, it's just a matter of finding, as it were, protocols, like, ways of making that happen. Yes, I, I'd agree with that. And um, The only um, rider I'd put is that I think there is a genuine question about whether collaborative leadership, how that relates to still having a person um, have responsibility as leader as well. I mean, so I don't see it as selling the past. No, I wasn't presuming. I mean, no, I, I, know, I, know, I know you weren't implying that. I'm just simply saying that I think, I think it's actually quite possible um, to be collaborative with leadership while still having the parish priest, the bishop, as, as it were, the leader. It, it's a question of how they exercise that leadership, isn't it, I think? But it's daring to try and risk I agree. Make I agree. But it also means that in relation, therefore, to the first bit of what you said, the bishop remains, as it were, the guardian of the faith. I don't mean that to say others aren't, but I do mean it is a particular yeah. trust to the bishop's ministry. And there, just as the bishop's the chief missioner. Again, that clearly doesn't mean everybody else isn't. But it does mean that that's part of the trust to the bishop's ministry. And the bishop has to, if he's going to be true to that calling and that ministry, and indeed that need within the diocese that he's serving, he's got, he's got to honour that. You can't sell the pass on that. Um, but the, the way you express it doesn't have to be hierarchical. I mean, that's, 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 I think we'd be a one on that. Yeah. Yeah. Looking um, this week at uh, the draft uh, NSM uh, license, it says that the NSM works under the direction of the incumbent. And I'm just wondering about your view on the word direction. Yes, well, you could ask my view about quite lots of bits of canon law. <laughs> I'm always rather apologetic um, when I go to license, for example, a house of duty priest or a self-supporting priest, um, and I have to read a license which says assistant priest. And I'm, I'm, usually, I'm usually publicly apologetic, and I usually explain to the congregation, what you're about to hear will say assistant priest, in reality, um, I encourage the, um, the self-supporting clergy, when they've been ordained three or four years, to be called associate ministers. And I sometimes go to the parish to celebrate that, as it were, if you like, their um, passing out from their training stage um, into colleagueship. And I will say to people, well, but you have to remember that the license is a legal document, and legally, the Church of England only recognises either um, priests in charge, vicars, rectors, incumbents, or assistant curates. And if, if uh, it depends on what mood I'm in, I may explain that, uh, that actually the, uh, the incumbents are the curates, because they have cure of souls, which is a language we've lost. But, you know, we, we, we talk of curates as being curates. Well, actually, they're assistant curates. And again, it, it, it's worth sometimes reflecting on that. Um, and it's to do with health, isn't it? I mean, it's to do with wholeness, and therefore holiness of life, the cure, the care for the souls. And it's the care for the souls of the whole community, not just you lot in the church. So, I mean, occasionally they get a bit more from me. But, uh, but, but I, just think, I just think, okay, so we have, we have canon law, and we, we, we keep the legalities, but we, 
explain that um, where canon law is, canon law is always playing catch up, isn't it? I mean, uh, um, I, I phone the registrar sometimes and say, look, I'd like to do X, you can find me a way that I can do so legally. I mean, that's, you know, I think that's the lawyer's job, really. And, and if I really, if they say, you really, really can't, then maybe I do have to change and think of something else. But, but I mean, it's that, it's that way round. I mean, so uh, let's not get too fussed by it, I would say. Bishop Anthony, you've spoken to us with great clarity about clarity and the challenge of making the structures and the words and the liturgy model what we aspire to do for Christ. Thank you for that. Thank you for that challenge and for the cherishing of continuing to be here and agreeing to uh, accompany us through the rest of the weekend. Thank you very much. Thank you.